So I want to start with a story this morning. About 10 years ago, uh, 2008, I was in Fort Lauderdale for the Unitarian Universalist General Assembly. And the Reverend Forrest Church was one of the speakers. He had just published a book called Love and Death, My Journey Through the Valley of the Shadow. And it was a particular moment. It was a very poignant moment, you see, because Forrest Church knew he was dying. He had esophageal cancer. He knew he had a couple of months to live. He'd, he'd written this book, and he was at this General Assembly sharing his reflections and thoughts, the key themes of his life in ministry, these thoughts around love and death. He reminded us in that lecture that death is not life's goal, only life's terminus. The goal is to live in such a way that our lives will prove worth dying for. He went on to say, this is where love comes into the picture. This is where love matters. The one thing that can't be taken from us, even by death, is the love we give away before we go. Said another way, the essential work of our lives is to learn how to receive and how to give the deepest love possible. Nearly 10 years later, this book and this lecture, this moment at General Assembly in Florida, they are still with me. And what I want to explore with you all this morning is this question. Are there limits to the love we can receive? Are there limits to the love that we can give away? Or is love the ultimate renewable resource limitless in its potential? The kernel of this morning's message uh, began with Charlotte Holdman, a woman who was featured in the New York Times magazine this last December. Every year, the New York Times and their magazine section, they do this, the lives they lived. And they look at people who have passed away over the past year and lift up who they were, people from all walks of life. According to the, this New York Times piece, and I'm quoting, Charlotte Holdman, this woman that captured my imagination, she developed the field of death penalty mitigation, a dry abstract term for the fascinating practice of humanizing defendants enough to keep the state from killing them. Her clients, a huge range of clients, they've included Jared Loeffner, the gunman who shot Gabby Gifford uh, and other people in Arizona, um, Eric Rudolph, the 1996 um, Summer Olympic bomber, and Ted Kaczynski, among many others. The piece in the Times continued, Holdman believed that monsters, as the state painted her defendants to be, she believed that monsters were made, not born. And one question animated her life, one single question. What happened to turn you into a person capable of doing this? This piece went on to say she understood that if you dug deeply enough into a person's history, two or three or maybe four generations back, you would find the original wound. And if you understood the wound and traced its effects downstream, you would care enough to preserve a person's life. End of quote. It was this eulogy, really, the story of her life that got me thinking about giving and receiving love, got me thinking about the limits of love or limitless love. Because surely Charlotte Holdman represents the far reaches of how love can show up in the world. 
With fierce, dogged commitment, Charlotte wanted to find and understand the original wounds in someone's life or history so that compassion, love, might emerge and then preserve that life. I found Charlotte's story to be incredibly compelling. I learned, and I'm quoting again from this article, she saw the death penalty, especially the racist, classist ways it was meted out in the United States, as the ultimate human rights fight. She did not argue her client's innocence. She didn't stand before the judge or the jury or others and say they're innocent, but she would do anything she could to keep her clients off the lethal injection gurney or out of the electric chair. What is it? What is it in the human heart? What is it when the majority of a society agrees that person is a monster and someone is compelled to say, no, there's more to that story. Charlotte Holder's story reminds me of the work of Sister Helen Prejean, particularly as it comes to life, her story in the movie Dead Man Walking. This is a movie a couple of decades old now, but it's based on some of her work to abolish the death penalty. In this movie, Sister Helen Prejean, played by Susan Sarandon, befriends a so-called monster, a seemingly worthless human being on death row. His name is Matthew Poncelet, played by Sean Penn. Poncelet is in prison for murder. He's not particularly likable. He's sexist, he's a racist, he continues to profess his innocence. He doesn't take any responsibility for the crime he's committed. Despite this, Sister Helen Prejean works to have his death sentence commuted to a life in prison sentence, and she begins to serve as his spiritual advisor, coming in and meeting and talking with him. The appeal is rejected, and Poncelet is scheduled to be executed. And in this critical moment, Sister Helen Prejean doesn't turn away from Matthew Poncelet. Instead, holding tight to the words from the book of Matthew, I was in prison and you visited me. She embodies a love that allows her to say to him, when you're in the execution chamber, when you are there, I want the last face you see in this world to be the face of love. So you look at me when they do this thing. I'll be the face of love. Now I know there are people in this room whose lives have been deeply impacted by violence, done by another. And perhaps it feels unimaginable to offer this kind of love to someone who caused you harm. And there may be some of you here this morning based on your own life experiences that would say a man like Matthew Poncelet or anyone who murders someone else should be in the execution chamber. That's what justice is like, you might believe. And to be clear, Sister Helen Prejean hadn't been directly impacted by Matthew Poncelet's violence. And yet, what's true is that her love is not a love that sugarcoats the horror of what Matthew Poncelet has done. It's not a love that forgives or excuses his crime or forgets it. Instead, it is a love that sees Matthew Poncelet in the fullness of who he is. A murderer, yes, but also in her theology, a child of God, in our theology, a child of the universe, someone worthy of respect and dignity. 
As Sister Helen has said, I do not want to glorify Matthew Ponsolet. He did the most terrible crime of all. He killed. But he was a human being, and he had a transcendence, a dignity. He, like each of us, was more than the worst thing he had done in his life. This experience points to a kind of limitless barrier-crossing love that can be alive in the world. But love doesn't always look like this. For many reasons, love is often never given away or is withheld or is denied or conditional in its nature. And I wonder, does love have limits or do we limit love? This is complex, challenging terrain that we're exploring. And perhaps if we do a deep dive into ourselves, reflecting on how love is present or absent in our own lives, we may uncover some additional insights. I think most of us know when we're in our right minds, when we're spiritually grounded and feeling emotionally healthy, most of us know that we are not the worst thing we've ever done in our lives, nor are we the best thing we've ever done in our lives. We know this in our heads, at least, but living it, actually believing it, is another thing entirely. And so we can carry deep, harsh judgments of ourselves and feel ashamed of the things that we've done or haven't done. Worse still, we can feel deep shame about who we are. We might look put together to the outside world, have nice clothes and look good and have, have things together, and yet inside we're a mess feeling deeply unlovable. <laughs> In these circumstances, it feels like there's a real limit to the love we can offer ourselves because we know these flawed and broken parts of ourselves and they're unlovable and we can scarcely imagine, because we don't have much love for ourselves, other people loving us. You know what I'm talking about, right? You've had this experience, that moment, something you've done or a secret you carry, a shame, and you just think, I can't believe that happened. I, I'm not that person. I don't love this part of myself. How could someone else, if they knew this, love this part? I'm, you know what I'm talking about, right? You've been there. So when someone sees us through the eyes of agape love, this overflowing love that seeks nothing in return, when someone sees who we are, when they see our flaws and our beauty and our tears and our rage, our anger, our messiness, when they see it all and they aren't scared and they don't turn away, then we experience what feels like impossible, limitless love. This experience changes us. When you are seen in your fullness, the fullness of who you are, it changes you. And then perhaps slowly you begin to love yourself in deeper ways. When you are held, when we are held in that kind of love, our very being changes. I believe this experience of limitless love is one of the things that can happen in our circles, in our soul matter circles, our newcomer circles, these spiritual practice circles. In these circles, participants engage in the deep spiritual work of just being present, of listening deeply, of authentically showing up to one another in a saying, through their presence, through their attentiveness, I see you. I see your grief. I see your struggles. I see your joy. I see your spirit. And I hold you in this sacred container we are making. In our circles, we can become the faces of love for one another as we embody a love that doesn't want to be limited. 
And when I think about the ultimate expressions of love, as they have been articulated and demonstrated by Jesus and by Charlotte Holdman and by Sister Helen and by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and so many others, what strikes me is that it's not conditional. Their words about love and giving away love and loving, they're not conditional. They do not say, well, I'll be the face of love to you if you act in a certain way. They don't say, love your enemies, but only love the ones that are just kind of sort of semi-enemies. And like the real enemies, you can just keep hating those guys. That's fine. They talk about this unconditional love. And these words remind me that it is possible, challenging, of course, but it is possible to incarnate, to embody the radically inclusive, sustaining love that our universalist forebearers believed in and staked their lives on. Our religious ancestors did not believe in a God that only loved some people, that only saved some souls. They believed in a God that loved all souls and was the face of love to all people. And while we may not always feel capable of doing this ourselves, our religious ancestors and countless others remind us we have the capacity to be bearers of such unconditional love and to carry it into places of despair and fear and hopelessness and to have that same love be carried to us when we're in a place of despair. Our common calling, that's us, this congregation, our common calling, our theological commitment is to strive to be the face of love in the world, to be a love that dismantles white supremacy culture, that welcomes the stranger, that embraces the immigrant, that reaches out to those in prison and to those impacted by those in prison. This is no easy task. This is no flowery, sugary love. We live in an execution chamber culture, one that all too often asks us to act from a mindset, as Sister Helen says, of fear and reprisal and retribution, rather than from overflowing, creative, agape love. Being people of faith, being the face of love as best we can be, means asking, as Sister Helen asks, are you for compassion or violence, mercy or vengeance, love or hate? Are you for life or are you for death? Our faith offers a theology and a set of values that are countercultural to this execution chamber mindset. Our calling is to live into and to commit ourselves to embodying the limitless love of which we are a part. And maybe you begin this journey in your own life by identifying, just take inventory, notice, where is your love conditional? Is it conditional with a child, with your partner at times, with a friend? Why is it conditional? Is, it, is your love only available or present if there's a certain outcome, a certain set of behaviors that are worthy of your love? Start there. Notice. Or maybe join a circle and then with real deep curiosity bear loving witness to your own life and the life of those in your circle. Start somewhere. Start somewhere and know that there is more love available in us and to us. Have courage. Have faith. Know that you are loved and that the love you give away never dies. Amen.